Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. I have been writing a book about night sky experiences on Highway 89, which runs from Mexico to Canada. And I'm excited to tell you that I can see the light at the end of the tunnel for writing this manuscript. I have driven this highway dozens of times to visit family and to visit some of the most amazing national parks. It wasn't until I started teaching naked eye astronomy to high school students several years ago when I went on this route again and realized just how pristine the night skies are along most of it. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that Highway 89 is a stargazer's playground, and the highway wanted me to be the one to write about it. Even though I had driven it dozens of times, I had never paid attention to it through the eyes of a true night sky tourist. So in August 2022, I took myself on a solo road trip, and I drove from my home in Arizona all the way to the border of Canada in two days, and then I spent 10 days making my way back along Highway 89. I had the time of my life exploring all the certified dark sky locations, observatories, nature centers, and a lot more. And on that 10-day drive home, I listened to what I think is the most suitable audiobook for a road trip based on stargazing. It's a book by Joe Marchant, called Human Cosmos, Civilization and the Stars. As I drove along exploring Highway 89, I was being whisked away into a deeper and deeper love for the night sky and appreciation for the relationship humanity has had with it for thousands and thousands of years. This book won some really cool awards, too. NPR's Best Book of 2020 list, The Economist's Best Book of 2020 list, Smithsonian's Top 10 Best Science Books list, Library Journal's Best Science and Technology Book of 2020, and Newsweek's Must Read Book to Escape the Chaos of 2020. I am so excited to have Joe Marchant as a guest on this episode. Joe is an award-winning science journalist with a PhD in genetics and medical microbiology, and a degree in science communication. Her writing explores the nature of humanity and our universe from the mind-body connection to the mysteries of past civilizations and the awesome power of the night sky. Please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Joe Marchant. Thank you so much for joining us on the Night Sky Tours podcast all the way from across the pond in London. Welcome. Hi, really happy to be here. I am so in love with your book, The Human Cosmos. 
So my first question, because I've been so curious about this all along, is what sparked your interest in human cosmology and cultural astronomy to begin with? Yeah, um, there are a few different things, I think. So I always give slightly different answers to this question, um, but I think I've narrowed it down. So one of the main things actually, because my background is as a biologist, I have a PhD in genetics. So I've always had a science background, but not particularly to do with history in the sky. But one of the things that really changed that was an ancient Greek mechanism <laughs> that was found on a shipwreck called the Antikythera mechanism. I was working as an editor at the journal Nature, Quite a few years ago now when um, a big paper came out on this and researchers had x-rayed these pieces that had come up from a shipwreck these battered bronze pieces 2000 years old or these clockwork gears and dials and pointers and in inscriptions like it's the most sophisticated thing we have from the ancient world it's incredible and i ended up writing a piece about it traveling to athens to see it interviewing all of the researchers and it turned out that what it was was a little model of the heavens. It's like a little pocket universe with a dial on the front. You turn the handle and it shows you everything that's happening in the sky at that moment in time. So there's pointers showing you the sun, the moon, the planets. There's a little cal calendar for stars. It predicts eclipses. It's an incredible thing. It's that it's the peak of ancient technology, essentially. And I mean, I'm just in love with this d device. It's incredible. But it also just got me thinking about, well, why did they choose to do this with it? The ancient Greeks had this incredible technology and the thing that they chose to do was to model the, the sky. They were trying to understand the, the, the heavens. Um, and that really intrigued me. Why was it so important to them? Um, and it got me thinking about the fact that all cultures, all civilizations, all societies through history have had that same connection with the sky. It's been so important to people all through history. Um, and that's something that we are really missing now. You know, I live in London, we, we can't really see much of the sky. So I really wanted to investigate that more, like how have people connected to the sky through history? Um, what has that meant? Why has it been important? And particularly with increasing light pollution now, what are we losing now? So what what are we losing if we can if we lose our view of the stars? And then another kind of theme that came into that. So another book that I've written in the past was called um, Cure: A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. It was about the role of our minds in our physical health, um, which might sound like it's quite a different topic, but actually that it's sort of following um, the the theme there is all about um, experience, our states of mind, our emotions, our, our beliefs, and, and how important that is for our physical health as well. You know, we're sort of, we're not just physical bodies, like our, what we believe, how we feel, what we experience directly really matters. And that was a really important part of what I wanted to look at with our relationship with the sky as well, because today we're so divorced from the sky and we have uh, this amazing scientific understanding of the stars um, but we're sort of m missing that personal connection so that was something that I wanted to bring back as well like what does it actually mean uh, to us what does it do for us when we really personally sort of physically connect with the sky sorry that was a very long answer. oh I love it you know I'm working on a project I don't know if you know about it's called the International Dark Sky Discovery Center Mm -hmm. And it's a facility that we're building here in our community. And we're going to have this really amazing exhibit hall. 
And there's a section of it about cultural astronomy, which is like my big thing. I love all of that too. And I have just been just the the time that I've spent researching on this topic and stuff has just been absolutely inspiring to me because I think about how people were inspired by the night sky in so many ways. I mean, you just started off here with a bang with like this amazing scientific thing that we don't think they were capable of that long ago. But then there were a lot of other ways that that humans were inspired by the night sky, whether it was art or calendars or rituals or whatever. What are some examples that you give in the book in regards to these different ways that people were inspired? Yeah, I think what a lot of us forget today, as you know, I'm sure you're really aware of, is that in the past, the sky was everything to to people like you it, you know obviously it was this incredible light show that they had every night but it was a lot more than that it was kind of a like an organizing structural framework for all of existence really it, it was how you told the time it was how you told uh you know where where you were which direction you were facing it it was kind of told people about the eternal cycle of of life and, and death and nature like everything that was happening on earth and sky was all completely intertwined so those uh, celestial influences really fed through into every aspect of their lives uh so to give a couple of examples i mean it really goes all the way back to the paleolithic era so one of my favorite examples of this is um, Lascaux Cave in France. Uh, it's got these incredible um, paintings of animals on the walls, uh, 20,000 years old. Um, and there are different interpretations for what the paintings mean, but there's quite a lot of evidence from things like myth analysis, analysis of the paintings themselves, looking at lifestyles of um, other hunter-gatherer communities that might live similar lifestyles to the people of the Paleolithic. That what was really going on was that they weren't just painting animals, they were painting um, maps of stars in the sky. And the reason they were doing that was because the stars formed a calendar for them. So as different constellations became visible at different times of year, um, that matched up with different changes in the, the natural world. Uh, so the idea is that there's this huge bull, for example, and it's got this um, pattern of six dots above its shoulder, um, which looks an awful lot like the constellation of the, the Pleiades, which, of course, for us is just above the shoulder of a bull. So the, the, the suggestion is that they may have had a star calendar where the, the, the rising and the setting of the Pleiades would have been linked in with the life cycle of the Oryx bull, which they hunted. And, and I just love that story because it kind of just shows how entwined like earth sky nature everything was for them there was just one sort of system that changed through the year and also the idea that this link between the the Pleiades and a bull might have survived from then until now and we do have studies of, of other star myths um that are told around the planet now that also seem to date back to the paleolithic so there is sort of other evidence around that and i just think that that's incredible that some of the stories that we tell today about the stars are really these cultural memories from our very earliest ancestors um and then to give one other example that's quite different um the the way that people see the the cosmos and the universe you know how the universe works has always been really important for politics power sort of who gets to be in charge on earth and for lots of history 
you know, we've got sort of kings and, and emperors and they're all modeling themselves on celestial bodies. They're taking that divine authority from the sky. So Roman emperors would often associate themselves with Jupiter, for example. Um, you've got the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten um, described himself as the son of the sun. So suns, planets often associated with rulers and that kind of works really well because they're taking their authority from you know that's just how the universe works they're associated with these all-powerful beings in the sky but more recently as our understanding of the universe has changed we're still taking inspiration from the sky but in a different way so i use the example of isaac newton um, in the 17th century so he revolutionized physics by uh showing that everything in the universe um the movements of everything from particles to planets can be described by universal mathematical laws. Um, so celestial bodies, that, that sort of changed how people saw the sky because celestial bodies are no longer these divine kind of beings that can do whatever they want. You know, they've got to obey these same physical rules as everything else. And that fed through into society. People started asking, well, if that's true for planets, shouldn't that be true for society as well? Shouldn't everybody from commoners to kings have to obey the same laws? And that was really influential for debates over democracy, human rights during the Enlightenment into the 18th century, it fed through into the American Revolution as well. Thomas Paine was a key figure arguing for independence of America, and he's using arguments from Newtonian physics. Um, this one example is he talked about, uh, so people at the time used to see America as a, a planet orbiting the central sun of England. And he was saying, well, that isn't right because in nature, satellites are always smaller than the star or the planet that they orbit, whereas America is bigger than England. So clearly it should be independent. So it's kind of an argument from how things work in the sky to say, well, this means America should be independent. And he was really influential. And then even after independence, the sort of founders of the United States were using similar Newtonian arguments when they were arguing about sort of the relationships between the states and federal government, for example. And when they needed you know, a new flag, um, again, you, you see that same influence coming through because once America was independent, it couldn't be just a, a planet anymore. It couldn't be a lone planet drifting on its own. So they came up with this new idea of a constellation of equal stars in the sky. And you see that on the flag. So it's people looking to the sky, thinking about how the universe works is built into the very structure of the, the democracies that we still live in today. I think that's something that so many of us don't understand is how much even how much the ancient stuff still is part of our culture and even things just a few hundred years ago are so embedded in our culture and i think i think it's because you've kind of already alluded to this this idea of a disconnect from the night sky and i don't i don't know what it's like for people who live in england you guys have a, a deeper longer history there um, but I know that most Americans today, if they're not, if they're not from one of the Native American cultures, we have no cultural connection to the night sky, just none. And so I'm, I'm curious in all the things that you've studied, um, what do you think that we've lost because we don't have a real connection with the night sky? Yeah, this is one of the things that I really wanted to try and, and look at. And so part of it is that cultural connection to 
people through history, people around the planet. You know, we've all been under the same stars and, and just having that bond with people. It's something that we have in common. We should have in common with all of these different societies. But there is definitely more um, practical things as well to do with kind of how we live and our physical and, and mental health when we lose that connection with our environment. Um, so, yeah, now, you know, we have what, electric lights, central heating, um, floodlit shopping centers and, and we've got our offices. Um, you know, we can work, work day and night, travel where we want. So we don't have to actually live at all in in terms of we don't really have to be connected with what's going on in the sky at all. So there's the cultural connections you're talking about, but also just physically as well. We don't need to be connected. Um, but scientists are finding I mean, it's kind of common sense, but scientists are also finding that there's downsides to that. So um, neuroscientists have looked at um the effects of regularly using sat-nav systems to navigate, for example. So people used to navigate by the stars, but now, you know, you can just navigate by your little screen. You don't even have to look out of the window. You need, don't need to have any sense of like where you actually are. Um, and they found that that does actually change people's brains. So that erodes our ability to pay attention to our surroundings. It erodes our awareness of where we are. We become less able then to find a way for ourselves. Um, with clocks as well, you know, people used to have this sense of time from the cycles in the sky, but now we have more and more sort of accurate um, mechanical digital clocks. And that's feeding um, a phenomenon in psychology called time famine, where um, we're just rushing to meet deadlines all the time. People always feel like they haven't got enough time, makes us very stressed. And actually people, that changes the sorts of decisions people make. Like when people feel like they just don't have enough time, um, they don't eat as healthily. They Maybe they don't go to the doctor because they don't have enough time. They don't exercise. They don't um, socialize in the same way. Um, maybe they're not, you know, getting involved in their community. So that there's really quite broad ranging um, implications from just the fact that we are now measuring and filling our time ever more precisely. Um, there's also circadian clocks. So our bodies are, you know, we have evolved that we, our bodies use the cycles of the sun and the moon to regulate our biology through, through the day. Um, and so then there's quite a lot of evidence now showing that if we are disconnected from the light, from the sun and the moon, that has a lot of health uh, problems from uh, depression, obesity, insomnia, but even things like cancer and, and heart disease. Um, I think one of the things that I found the most interesting actually was a sort of more psychological aspect, which is to do with the emotion of awe. Um, I'm sure that this is something you must have experienced on that incredible um, road trip that you were talking about, but um, being confronted by something vast, that, that wow feeling we get when we're just dwarfed by something that's too big for us to understand and, and psychologists are finding that that has all kinds of benefits it makes us more uh, creative more curious uh happier less stressed we feel as if we have more time and people become more generous as well they're more likely to um help other people they uh care less about money and more about the planet so i think there's quite an important point there about how how we live generally, our perspectives, that when we are confronted by vastness, it sort of shifts our attention away from our, you know, small daily concerns towards something bigger. We feel connected. We feel part of something bigger. We make different kinds of decisions. And I think that's something really important today when we're all staring 
at our phones that we we need that vastness and that that's something that the stars give us and that we will lose when we can no longer see them. I love this topic you brought up too about timekeeping. I'm really fascinated by timekeeping. <laughs> and you know what's interesting to me is that in our modern day, we really don't even use the sun for timekeeping at all anymore because now we're using atomic clocks. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you don't even need the sun. So yeah, I think all aspect. I mean, even if you think about astronomers, um, you know, studying the universe and they've got these incredibly sophisticated telescopes. Um, no one actually looks through them. It's all sort of electronic detectors that are detecting the photons and being analyzed by computer. So astronomers today will be sitting, staring at their computer screens. They're not looking at the, the sky. So, you know, I love astronomy. I think it's incredible the understanding that we're getting, but writing this book, looking at this long history of, um, you know, how we've built a better and better understanding of the universe, a scientific understanding. It just seems that alongside that, we've increasingly sidelined the importance of our personal connection with the sky. We don't see that as important anymore, as telling us anything useful, a lot of us anyway. And I think that's what we we need to really try to rediscover. Yeah. So, so you know, we, we're talking here about technology taking us away from the night sky or the sky in general, but you've, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, a little bit earlier about light pollution. So not only is technology removing our need to rely on the sky for anything, whether it's the navigation or timekeeping or whatever, we also have light pollution and light pollution is basically erasing the night sky. And how, where do you see the role of light pollution in terms of our connection to the night sky that our ancestors always had and and these star stories that they've handed down and the information that's embedded in them what do you see in that it's an interesting one because i think there's different factors kind of feeding off each other so i would see light pollution as it's a cause of our disconnection from the sky because it's literally preventing us from seeing the stars, but it's also a symptom of our increasing disconnection, if, if that makes sense. That's um, perfectly so I, said, perfectly said. <laughs> it, it, it's coming from both sides. Yeah. So there's, I think through history, there's been this philosophical shift towards, you know, mathematics and intellectual understanding, and we're measuring things to understand the universe. And um, so we're not paying attention to our experience. But then that's driven the that's made us perhaps value our view of the stars less, but it's also enabled the technology. And, and so there's just, yeah, there's just different factors coming in, and they're feeding off each other and making this kind of vicious cycle. And the less that we do experience the sky, and the less we realize that it's important. So there's um, an effect, um, sort of a, like a generational effect that um, psychologists talk about, where we we kind of re we remember what the stars were like when we were a child, but then for each generation that comes, they they could see less when they were a child. So each generation kind of forgets what this the, the sky should look like, um, and so then and you know now of course with phones and social media. I mean, obviously loads of benefits coming from all of that that technology, but it really does give people no reason to to to, to look up. So it's it's really difficult to know kind of how to um how to break that cycle. Um there doesn't seem to be much hope of a kind of top 
top down solution so i'm i'm i guess it's just going to have to be like a grassroots of individuals deciding that this is something that matters to us and that we want to change the way we live to try to um to strengthen that connection i'm always encouraged at least that light pollution is the easiest kind of pollution to take care of but it's but we do all have to work together to make it work yeah you're right i mean we could just switch it off right yeah <laughs> and then it's which is just yeah incredible but then we just seem to be going in the opposite direction um you know as lighting design becomes more efficient it seems that we just use that to get more and more light um and then we've got all of the the satellites that are being um launched you know communication satellites thousands of them that are apparently soon going to outnumber the stars in the sky We've got drones that can make all of these sort of light patterns in the sky that are starting to be used for sort of entertainment, but also advertising. So I, it feels as if the sky is going to become that sort of next space that's going to get taken over in terms of sort of um, marketing and advertising and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, we we can have, you know, dark sky reserves and parks, which I think are so important. But then if you've got, say, satellites in this in the sky that are outnumbering the stars, then, you know, you're not even going to be able to have that that natural view in those protected places. So it is really difficult. So I have a fun question for you. When you were researching your book, Human Cosmos, what would you say was the most surprising thing or maybe even the most exhilarating thing that you came across? Mm. I mean, there were lots of things. So I've already mentioned um, one of them, which is this, the fact that our connection with the stars goes all the way back to the Paleolithic. And we have these stories about the stars that we still tell today, like over 20,000 years. For me, that's just dizzying. It's amazing. Um, but one of the others that I was really surprised by um, was I, I looked at the sort of biology of our connection with the cosmos. So um, our uh, circadian rhythms, connections with the sun, we know, we know. So, you know, we've got these 24 hour clocks that regulate, um, you know, everything from our sleep and digestion to hormone levels, um, uh, replication of our, our DNA even. Um, but I was surprised, first of all, of the importance of the moon. So there's quite a lot of um, research now showing that um, many species, and probably including us, have sort of genetically encoded lunar clocks with hundreds of genes that are following um, the phases of, of the moon. And that's obviously something that's in a lot of cultural stories. There's this sort of sort of ancient almost wisdom about the importance of the, the moon for our our. our you know, our bodies. Um, but it's something that scientists have always been quite skeptical of. But that is something that's starting to be shown now that um, um, the moon is important. And but not just the light of the moon, what really kind of blew my mind was research showing um, that we are sensitive to really um, subtle changes in magnetic, the Earth's magnetic field, like it's a tidal effect caused by um, the, the sun, but also the moon sort of caused this kind of uh, yeah, tidal sort of ripple effect on the Earth's magnetic field. And those really tiny changes seem to be influencing people as well. There's some really interesting studies in bipolar disorder showing that those cycles are influencing people's sleep patterns, which in turn um, relates to their mood changes in bipolar disorder. So we're really plugged into that kind of wider cosmic environment in a much 
um, sort of deeper way than I think most of us realize. So it's not just the light patterns, but also these really tiny sort of changes in the magnetic field. So I think that's something, it's gonna be a really interesting area for scientific research moving forward because it's something that's always been dismissed. Um, but I think we're only, yeah, just starting to realize the complexities of those relationships. I am really fascinated in that because it's hard to imagine that we're not impacted at all by the closest celestial object to us. You know, the the sun powers our lives and obviously it's it's huge, it's enormous, it just does amazing things, but there's no way the moon can't do something. Oh, it impacts our earth, you know, with the tides and the the oceans and stuff and so I'm I'm really curious to see where that research goes. Yeah, we've evolved in this cosmic environment, you like, from the very sort of beginnings of life. They're not on the earth separate from the sky. They, the organisms have evolved in this sort of changing cyclic environment of changing magnetic fields, changing light patterns, and that includes the sun and the moon. You know, life isn't distinguishing between them. It's just kind of... Make, making sense of and, and working with all of these changing patterns and, and now we sort of separate out well there's the earth down here and then the celestial bodies are sort of way over there and there's the sun and the moon but that's not actually really how how life works we're absolutely embedded in all of these changing patterns so yeah I agree I think it's going to be a really interesting area to watch how can people learn more about your work uh well I have a website which is joemarchant.com J-O-M-A-R-C-H-A-N-T dot com. Uh, so on there, there's information about all of my books, about different articles that I've written. I've written quite a lot of articles on this topic as well um, and details of uh, my um, Instagram and Twitter, X, I guess we should call it now. So yeah, everything everything is on jmarchant.com. I will put a link to that in the show notes so that people can just go and just tap right on that and get right over to you. Great, thank you. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. I I just couldn't wait to be able to chat with you about this because this is the book on my shelf that when people come to my house and they see all the books I have on night sky stuff, they're like, which one's your favorite? And a human cosmos right here. <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> yeah. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. If you live in Arizona or plan to visit in March, Joe Marchant will be the keynote speaker at our Fountain Hills Dark Sky Festival on March 30th, 2024. Come and listen to her speak, meet her in person, and buy a book and get it autographed. We'll also have Marsha Diane Arnold doing a story time for kids with her sweet book, Lights Out. Marsha has been a guest on the Night Sky Tours podcast twice on episodes two and 54. We have a huge variety of exhibitors, virtual reality tours of the solar system, live nocturnal animals, hands-on activities, and the chance to make a postcard that will go to space with Blue Origin and then be mailed to your mailbox after its trip. And of course, no proper festival is complete without food trucks, a beer and wine garden, and live music. And when the sun goes down, we'll have dozens of telescopes for stargazing, and I'll be leading some laser-guided, naked-eye tours across the night sky. For all the details about this event, visit fhdarksky.com 
or click on the link in the podcast show notes. And for links for everything that you've heard about in this episode, click on the show notes or visit nightskytours.com slash 90. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist Podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist Podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it and giving us five stars. Your ratings are really important to me and they help more people discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. Until next time, keep looking up. Mm